Welcome to the exam room. This is your host, Dr. Brian Vardabedian, aka Dr. V from 33 Charts. In case you haven't noticed and you've been living under a rock, healthcare is awash in bullshit. So I was completely thrilled to have a chance to talk to Dr. Jevin West, Associate Professor in the Information School at the University of Washington. He, along with Carl Bergstrom, his co-author, have written a powerful new book, Calling Bullshit, The Art of Skepticism in a Data-Driven World. In this crazy, fun conversation, we cover conspiracy theories to the most granular aspects of bullshit. You have to hear it to believe it. You're going to love this one. You'll learn how to identify it, see through it, and combat bullshit with effective analysis and argument. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Jevin West, welcome to the exam room. Thanks for having me, Brian. Excited to have a fun conversation this morning. Yeah, so tell us what you do and how you wound up writing a book called Calling Bullshit. Well, I've spent uh, almost all my career in research and in science, and I've had the opportunity to review hundreds and hundreds of papers and proposals, um, had a chance to read lots and lots of academic papers, and as a personal citizen and in a a general information consumer online, I'm always sifting through information. So just like everyone else, I run into a lot of uh, BS. And in my field, I'm, my field's in data science and information science. Uh-huh. About 10 years ago, there was a big rise in this, the excitement around it. And there, sh- there, there should be. I mean, I teach it. But there's a lot of <laughs> BS coming from the data world, too. So my colleague, Carl Bergstrom, and I decided the best thing that we could do was teach a class not necessarily on big data or on uh, you know, misinformation or uh, on, uh, um, you know, you know, the best statistics or the machine learning algorithms of the time, but to call BS on it and, and more generally call BS on all the misinformation out there. So that's, that's how we got there. And now I, we have a new center at the University of Washington called the Center for an Informed Public that's devoted to combating misinformation, strategic misinformation and improving democratic discourse, both in science and outside of science in the general public. And you teach a course for undergraduates at University of Washington. Is that right? We do. It's my favorite course. I love teaching in general. That's why I'm on a campus. But the Calling BS course with Carl is is certainly a joy. We're having it fall quarter. Again, we have it every year in the fall quarter. It fills, uh, you know, usually within a minute of it being open from 40 different majors across campus, generally seniors because they have priority. Um, but it's a class that um, really brings in all sorts of different subjects from communications to science communications to uh, humanities to law and policy. Um, and we have a good time. We, we try to make it fun and amusing, you know, because it can be a, a topic that's quite serious and a topic that, especially when politics get involved, which we try to avoid those, but you can't fully avoid them. We have to be a little bit more sensitive to those subjects. But it's a, it's a real joy. And it, that class is now expanded to many, many other universities around the world and in high schools now. And so there's kind of a, a BS movement in education, I suppose, that's going on. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And as we'll kind of get into it at the end, this is a huge issue going forward, the way we prepare the next generation to be literate, critical thinkers, right? It really is. I see it as one of the most pressing problems of our time. Um, you know, next to COVID, obviously, right now. Right. But it's hard to solve a pandemic or to solve economic disparity or social issues or climate change if we can't get the information problem right first. And then we really are in a time um, because of the growing pains of social media and the internet where we 
we have we have some sorting out to do and some pollution to clean up in order to um, to solve this big challenge. So yes, I think it is one of the challenges of our time. So up front, Devin, I want to say that this book is great. And for anyone listening, uh, Calling Bullshit is really a, a great read uh, because you do a brilliant job of translating some really complicated concepts and then illustrating them with some some strong examples. And I will add to that as a pediatrician, I'm actually a pediatric gastroenterologist, but I was thrilled that you use, of course, the anti-vaccine movement example, as well as the role of fever in the management of pediatric disease under discussions of causation and correlation. So really a great approachable book. Well, thanks so much. And we really uh, take a long time getting those examples right. Of course, we have probably thousands of examples that didn't land into the book and we fretted over what to include and what not to. And we want to make those available in other forms. So we'll start putting them on the website. We'll put them, you know, we put them in talks or, or lectures whenever we can. So, you know, I really appreciate it. We wanted to make it accessible. Uh, you know, at one point we thought we'd write it for graduate students and an academic audience. But we thought this is too darn important yeah. for all of us to um, to get better at, including me and Carl. I mean, we both need to get better at it. And it is it includes the younger generation, the digital natives, but also people that are retired and looking to, you know, still want to contribute in, in important ways and want to understand the information environments they're in. But we do, as you noted, have several examples around health information and health misinformation and also around uh, science communication more generally and, and around concepts that we struggle with all the time, like causation and correlation and selection bias, et cetera. Right. So that, that's what we were trying to weave in there. And I, and I appreciate the kind words. So let's start with like uh, maybe some basic stuff. Um, you know, I can ask you the question, what is bullshit? Because um, you get into some serious granularity in the book about bullshit. We do. It's just, it's this amazing thing, as Harry Frankfurt uh, wrote in his book on right. uh, you know on bullshit, which was written a long time. It's beautiful little tiny book, great holiday stuffer if you if you want if you want to get yeah. on. Um, but uh, but he starts with you know one of the more salient features of our uh, of our world is how you know how pr prolific this is. It's everywhere. Um, and it's been largely ignored in the academic world, you know, sans, you know, Harry Frankfurt and others. But it is actually picking up steam. I've actually been to conferences, social psychology conferences, et cetera, before, of course, COVID, where this was these were major sessions at major conferences. Now, people are taking it serious because of the way that, that, that we communicate online and that so much of it is is bullshit. But we did take a, a lot of care in the definition. We sort of see bullshit in a very specific way, although it, the definition still involves, but we, we think it involves language, of course, and rhetoric, but it also involves statistical figures, data graphics, and other forms of presentation that are intended primarily to persuade by impressing and overwhelming someone with a blatant disregard, disregard for truth and logical coherence. And we see that different um, from a liar, like Harry Frankfurt and other philosophers that have talked about this, in that a liar kind of knows the truth and just wants to pull you away from it. Whereas bullshitters are just trying to, you know, they're just trying to get, get your attention and sometimes just show you how cool you are and persuade you, et cetera. So, you know, that's the definition's evolving, but the main things there are that it can involve things like data. In fact, that's the focus of our book mostly because it's a kind of bullshit that most people don't see as bullshit. And we say data can be great, but also it can be a veil for misinformation. So you say in the book that uh, full-on bullshit is intended to distract, confuse, or mislead, which means that the bullshitter needs to have a mental model of the effect that his actions have on an observer's mind. 
So it's kind of manipulative, no? It totally is. I'm glad you picked that out. It's a very subtle thing. Again, Carl, we, we fretted over that section for a long time. But we, we claim that there's a need for a theory of mind to, uh, to really be a bullshitter. And to, the reason why you need that is because you have to be able, have this ability to sort of put yourself into someone else's head, kind of, uh, you know, create, you know, try to understand the world from their perspective. So then by, by doing that, you can manipulate. We talk about a, a beautiful experiment that shows that uh, corvids, crows, actually um, might have a theory of mind, which most animals don't. It's one of the unique things we have. Um, as humans, although that's still being investigated. But yes, the idea that you are manipulating because of your our ability to sort of place ourselves into someone else's mind and in their in their perspective. So could you just unpack that theory of mind a little bit? Uh, what, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, so theory of mind is this uh, ability of humans. And like I said, it's quite um, unique to us. I mean, there's some, I, there's some work that's shown that maybe primates have it. The most interesting thing is, is that crows have it. Carl is a huge fan of crows, and he follows that research very closely. Um, and there's been some really nice work. We mentioned one of them, one of those research pieces in the book. But it's this ability to attribute sort of mental states, like you know, desires and emotions and knowledge that people have of the world to oneself and to others. Uh, and it's really, I mean, we truly need this uh, to understand beliefs uh, that are that are sort of like our own, but also different from our own, and we get it early on. I mean, it's it, you know I've looked at the research at various a little bit, but you know maybe four or five, six years old. Um, that's when we start to pick that up because before that, kids just have their own total universe, and it's not when till they sort of pick up this ability they realize they might not be the center of the universe. And 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 using this uh, this really powerful tool that we have in our brains gives us a lot of uh, social manipulation abilities. So does, does it have to be intentional? Because I kind of, as I was reading the book, I was wondering, you know, I think I bullshit people all day long and I really don't know it, but it's, uh, it, it, it's supposed to be intentional. It's no? a good question. We have gone back and forth on whether it requires that. We certainly know it exists where we actually bullshit and don't mean it. And then when we bullshit and mean it, I am, I've moved more to, to thinking that it can be unintentional and intentional. So, you know, there are times when I truly am in bullshit, bullshitting and I sort of look back at myself later on and go, oh, whoa, I was just in a crowd, didn't know what I was talking about and sort of just mm-hmm. <laughs> flying with the mouth. Or, or we all know that we have that deadline for that, uh, I don't know, some pr- proposal that we have to just put a bunch of words and because we haven't really had a chance to think through it. So we're, we're bullshitting. We, we unfortunately, in the education system, uh, teach our students to do this to some degree. I mean, we, we, we almost sort of encourage them to turn in essays that uh, sound like they know what they're talking about with jargon and links to everything. <laughs> but it was an essay they wrote at two o'clock in the morning. And so they had to learn to bullshit. And not all bullshit is bad. I mean, you know, there's times when we compliment people <laughs> on things that we're not, you know, there, there's, a, there's different forms of it. But there's certainly bullshit that's more uh, can be more damaging, uh, you know, when people are, uh, you know, trying to convince people of health information that's just simply not true or based on empirical evidence. But there is the bullshit that's totally fine um, and doesn't, you know, it's not damaging to them. In fact, it's kind of needed in some ways. So there's different degrees. So yes, I do think it can be unintentional, intentional. In fact, Carl and I talk about, a lot of people talk about, especially, you know, 
nowadays, and we live in Seattle, it's a very important issue about being carbon neutral and being, you know, having sort of a conservation ethos uh, because of the things that we're seeing with our planet. But we can do that with bullshit too. We're all spew, everyone spews it, including me, Carl, every, everyone does. And so we want to be kind of bullshit neutral in that we're going to, we're going to bullshit, but we have to do a good job of at least spotting and refuting some of it every once in a while too. So do what we can to get to be um, bullshit neutral as well. Yeah. One thing that came through with your, the early part of the book discussion, is it paltering? Is it paltering? Yeah. Paltering. Paltering and all the various ways that we kind of manipulate other people. It was a little disheartening when I was thinking as a human, how complicated we are and the way we interact. And that's what got me to this question, is this intentional, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, and paltering is super interesting. Of course, politicians use that all the time. And Clinton with his, I... <laughs> Give us an example. What was the, define, yeah, tell us about that. Oh, right. So paltering is this idea where you're you're equivocating and you're, you're sort of not saying exactly something that's not true, but it really is not. And so Bill Clinton, of course, when he says, I think it was, I... I am not having sex uh, or, or or something uh, with that woman. Yeah, I have to. I have to. I have to. Have, I could even right. look it up real quick. Um, no, right, right. We know this. Thing. You're right. Exactly. We kind of he twisted a little bit. Right. right. I think. Oh yeah. Right. Let me just. Uh, it's a. I'm trying to think just for a second. We, well, I can think. Of, I don't have the exact quote, but we put that in the right. in the story. But there, it was a small change in the verb itself that made it technically not true or, or so true. But but it's not. Of course, it's not. Uh, the case. I mean, he clearly, clearly was guilty of it. So paltering is bullshit, right? Yes, I, I think so. Yeah. yeah. So uh, bullshit clearly is the issue of our time. And so why is, why write this book now? I mean, could this book have been written 15 years ago or why is it so important now? It's a, it's a great question. I wish we would have written it 15 years ago, but I do think now more than ever, and and partly because the way that we communicate as humans has changed dramatically mm-hmm. in the last ten to twenty years. I mean, I think everyone's aware of that. That's not nothing new, but we have gone through these major transitions in information technology. Of course, the printing press was a time that changed the way that producers and consumers of information participated um, in the sort of collective uh, discussion and, and the process of of communicating. And so at that time, too, there were a lot of concerns uh, about this new technology that, you know, some people thought, you know, the world was going to hell in a handbasket right. um, because anyone could write and anyone could read now. And so um, we got through it and I think we'll get through it now. But the reason why it's more pressing, I think, now is, is because of this new technology. Of course, social media is a major contributor to that, but not, it's not just social media. It's the combination of algorithmic curation, it's bots involved, mm-hmm. it's the ability for anyone to be a producer. There's the economics that drives a lot of the trash that goes around the internet because you can make a lot of money just by having people click regardless of the content and people know that and they can make a lot of money from that. And there's just tons of information. We're now not only the consumers, but most of us are producers and the gatekeepers and filters of information. We don't have a Walter Cronkite there helping at least to sift through the sort of major things um, of that day. And so, and, and we get tired. And so, yeah, so we need to be on the lookout. And, you know, apropos to the book, there's a lot of BS that's now coming in this world of quantification, of this quantified world that we live on now too. I mean, everything's quantified to some degree there's charts and data and algorithms and statistics everywhere. And that can be just as misleading as well. And so that's 
that's kind of why now it's it's especially important. But it certainly would have helped <laughs> when I think about it. I'm like, yeah, we should have written this 15 years ago. But but now is is certainly a time uh, for sure that we should be talking about it. Yeah, I guess it's the. Uh, I always like to think that it's uh, the uh, the volume, the immediacy, and the democratization of information that's kind of led to this, you know, this sort of pipeline of information, and um, you know, it's kind of what's behind it. I think you really, I think you really hit it there, Brian. I really do think this democratization of information um, is very much at at the root of this. And you know, what's interesting about that is that. You know, if you would have done this interview, you know, 18, 20 years ago, there was a lot of excitement for that. And there still is. And there's so many great benefits of this new technology for human society. I mean, you, you know, diverse voices and collective action, the, the access to diverse voices and collective action is, 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 is really, truly unprecedented. And there's so many other good things that it does bring. But with those, with that democratization, there, there are some growing pains we're going through. And, and I think we just need to become better information consumers because we can throw technology at it and laws, but they're not going to solve it. They're limited. I think the best thing we can do is just make help all of us, which we all see are participating in this, is become better information consumers. And that includes in the health care. I mean, one of the things that we've been doing a lot in our new center right now is working um, with more people that are engaging in this topic. We just hired a person, Colina uh, Tai, as a postdoc in our center who specializes in anti-vaccination sentiment and health misinformation and health hesitancy. Wow. Um, and it, it's amazing the work that she's been doing, essentially embedding herself in these communities to try to understand what drives these ideas. Um, and in the process of conversations with her and others in this space, We've been seeing how prolific it's it's you know becoming not just around COVID. We could talk an entire podcast about COVID nineteen misinformation mm-hmm. for sure. But it's things like fluoridation. It's just the the conversations day to day. I imagine that physicians are having. I I, th- I read a really powerful article the other day by a, a physician who said that almost eighty to ninety percent of her time in doctor visits is now debunking misinformation. Mm-hmm. And that just right. was stunning to me. You go to medical school to help treat patients. You don't get trained to deal with this new information environment and this flood of misinformation that's going on. And so one thing I've been thinking about, and we should even talk about it, <laughs> Ryan, I, I'm curious what your your ideas are around this, but to maybe think about how can we incorporate maybe a seminar or something specifically tailored towards medical school students and physicians that would help them be aware of some of the most current trends and manipulative things that they that the, the public is going to see and that they might be coming to their office. And maybe we could figure out a way to, to address this. Cause I, I do think it's a serious issue. And I think it would be fun to get your new hire on uh, into the exam room to talk a little bit about uh, her work, because this is obviously you cover beautifully and calling bullshit, the, the anti-vaccine movement on a variety of points, but it, it certainly the why it happens and the mentality is fascinating. Oh, we, we should definitely do it. I, I can help coordinate that. Her name's Colina, and she is fantastic at you know having these kinds of conversations. And she is, I think, one of the world's expert on this. So, and you, we should definitely do that. I'd be happy to. And by the way, I just thought of, I just remembered the Clinton quote, which was he said, uh, "There is no sexual relationship." He said it sort of as if you know, they're indicating there was no ongoing relationship. And there's plenty of other uh, paltering ones, but I was just. Bang, bugging me in my head. What was it? Was it is? Or it is. That's what it was. <laughs> it depends what is is. Yes, right. Exactly. You got it. 
So here's, I just thought of this. I think I look at consumers who are either far progressive left, far right. And I understand none of this is, is uh, right or left, but don't we gravitate towards the bullshit that we want to see? And that's part of the problem that we're facing with the, the echo chambers and the, the tribalism that we're starting to see happen in, on social media. We do. And psychologists are working hard on that. In fact, I was reading papers, more new papers on, out on this uh, just last night. Um, it's something, you know, a lot of people refer to it as confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. So we all have biases, all of us, no one is immune to it. Yeah. Um, but we tend to find and seek out information that fits our narrative. We remember things better that fit our narrative. We sort of, we, we, we get rewards, sort of these like, you know, s- stimulus in our brain for things that confirm our narrative. So there's, it, it's no surprise that we sort of move to those areas, especially when these algorithms that are running A-B experiments every second of the day on these major platforms are finding out what sticks you to the platform because that's all they care. I think of like these big tech platforms like social media as the biggest bullshitters all because they don't care what you know or what you learn. They just want to stick you to the platform so that you click on ads. And so they know more about human psychology than, than even psychologists do. So yeah. we, we were pulled into these echo chambers. And then other research has found over several decades now on how we um, motivate our reasoning. It's called motivated reasoning. It's this idea that um, emotional ra- uh, rationalization can trump evidence-based uh uh, reasoning if um, if it goes against our ideologies and um, sort of our tribe uh, commitments. And so this is something uh, you know people have been showing for a long time. One interesting study that, that came out from Kehan uh, out of Yale recently showed that science curiosity, though, might be one of the few things that, that might be able to counteract motivated reasoning. There's some ongoing work. Uh, this What I'm talking about was published in 2017, but I know there's some more ongoing work on this. And it's just that uh, people, not necessarily that know more about science, sometimes they're the, they're the best at motivated reasoning, both on the left politically and on the right politically, but it's those individuals that are at least more uh, open-minded, that enjoy the process of figuring out things about the world and about science. So science curiosity might be one of those antidotes, and, and I've written about it just a little bit in a few blog posts, but I, I think it's something that we should think more about in education and also when we talk about science and and, and health uh, and health information. And so the, the major big internet, Google, Facebook, uh, bullshits the fuel, kind of the fuel of their businesses, wouldn't you say? It is. And I hate to say it. Uh, well, I, actually, I don't hate to say it. I, I'm going to just say it. They, <laughs> they make lots and lots of money off of spreading misinformation and conspiracy mm-hmm. theories. I mean, YouTube is a participant in that. They've made tons and tons of money off of people watching gazillions of hours of conspiracy theories because humans are interested in those sensational things and those ideas that are simple that that make you feel special like you know something that someone else doesn't these are these are all over the internet and that's what keeps us a lot on the platform you know headlines when you you look at clickbait i mean if you go to cnn for example and you look at all the advertising the native advertising that that lives on those major news sites all of it's clickbait, and we all we all kind of know that, but we we still succumb to it um, because we're humans, and it's hard not to click on that you know story that has you know five kittens that look like Robert De Niro or whatever. <laughs> it's, these are the kinds of things that 
make it hard to read more nuanced writings, the sort of the stories that try to get to unvarnished, you know, the unvarnished truth. And so, yeah, I, I, I think that this confirmation bias, motivated reasoning, um, these are real, they're kind of bugs in the software of human cognition, but there probably are some things that can counteract it. And I think one of the big things is to talk about epistemology. Of course, don't use the term, but talk about how we know what we know. Talk about, uh, with, with the public and students, about science from a wonder standpoint and health information from from an exciting to learn standpoint rather than uh, just here's some facts to know. Because facts by themselves don't work. You can't jam more facts into people's head. That's not, a lot of research has shown that that's not going to change their mind. You brought up, I guess people people want to click on the link bait or you reference in the book in some way about how consumers kind of propagate this because they kind of want they want those, they want the fantasy of what's on the, the link, right? Or they, they kind of, they want a simple solution or I don't know how you put yeah, it. Yeah, no, exactly. In fact, one thing that people should look out for in all kinds of writing, even in science writing, but certainly in the popular and social media are forward referencing headlines. What does that mean? So these are headlines that um, provide some hook, like, these are the five professions that are most likely to go bankrupt, or these are the yeah yeah you know these are the podcasts uh, to watch if if you're uh, you know scared about tomorrow's you know future or something you know there, there, there there's never an answer to it. There's always just this is the politician that said this. They don't say how how journalists used to write or should write. In my opinion, here's the story as much as you can pack into a headline. Then, you know, you get to the main points in the story because that's all the people have time for. And you write it like that instead of this enticement to click and come on in. Right. It changes the way we communicate and it distorts how information um, is pushed out, even from those trusted media sources or somewhat trusted media sources at the national and local scale, because they have to compete to get that revenue that pays their, their, their job, uh, pays their salaries. And so we really do need to rethink um, that form of communication. Fortunately, there are some somewhat bastions of truth on the internet surprisingly yeah i think that uh, wikipedia I, you i would have never guessed you know 20 years ago that that would be a place i would say would be one of the you know remaining rays of hope uh, when relative mm -hmm. to the other kinds of communication but yeah I, we, we uh people certainly should be aware most are uh we just need to to make us all better at not succumbing to it let me just, uh, Jeff, let me tell you about a, a book that I wrote uh, a decade ago called Colic Solved. And uh, you, you're, you're going to cringe because of the title. The book is really uh, about how colic is kind of a dated term and how a lot of the babies that we see with profound irritability are struggling with reflux and allergic enteropathy. So the publisher wanted to title the book Colic Solved. Uh, my publisher was Random House, incidentally, and I had an, a conversation with an assistant editor, which, which was really interesting. And I said, hey, listen, I'm not really solving colic. This, this is kind of disingenuous. And, and, and the assistant editor said to me, you know, Brian, books are really about fantasy. When someone walks into Barnes & Noble, they want to know that they can toilet train their baby in 24 hours. So they, they want to know that as a, as a manager, they can manage their team like a Navy SEAL. And so we engage in these fantasies as consumers of information, uh, be it clicking that link or even buying a book at Barnes & Noble. So my book wound up being called Colic Sol, which was really kind of a bit of a bullshit title, but it's still selling. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I mean, isn't that interesting? Thanks for sharing that story, Brian, because it's a great example of how this exists in the book industry. I didn't, to be honest, I hadn't 
thought of it that much, but I should have. I've been more focused on social media. But it, you're right. It, it, I mean, book publishers are doing it to the same degree. You hope at least the editorial process and the curatorial right. process creates better products. And I think it, it, it does. I wish there'd be more long-form reading out there by the younger generation and all of us, I guess, to some degree. But you're right. I mean, that's that title that you just shared. And by the way, it does sound very interesting. I want to read it now, too. Um, that it really does pull you in more. It's more of right. um, there's a there's a definite story there rather than hedging on at least how scientists hedge that, yeah, we've got some evidence more. Here's some things we've learned, which should be what we need if we want to get to the truth. But right. boy, humans like good stories. Mm -hmm. Hey, maybe you could settle a score for me. Um, so I work and communicate with a lot of doctors on Twitter. And there's a population of skeptic-like doctors who like to uncover snake oil salesmen. So they'll find a doctor selling a, a vitamin mix with some spurious, crazy claim. And then they'll kind of out that snake oil salesman. And so we have this ongoing debate. Is it better for us as public physicians out there on Twitter to not amplify that information or does exposing it actually do a better job of calling it out? Do you know what I'm asking? I totally know what you're asking. It's a, it's, it's a question that Carl and I have struggled on. And the reason why we struggle, very similar to, to why you're struggling, is that if we provide a platform for some of these conspiracy theories, it may actually amplify it. And, and, that, and that goes against what we want to do. And it e further decreases trust in that institution where that information resides. So it is something we truly are concerned about. However, Fact checkers also deal with this all the time. And if they never fact checked anything, we'd be even in a worse, a more world of hurt. I've talked to founders and, the, and those that run Snopes, for example, and they struggle with this too. It's like, you know, if once we get this out there, sometimes you get amplified. And, and for them, it's, there's an even business model, you know, motivation to it. So there's, they struggle with this issue too. But here's, here's my view on it. I feel that. Sometimes you will amplify something you don't want to amplify. But, but what you're doing is you, through these examples, and if you do them in ways that are fun and engaging, people will start to notice them more themselves. And they're going to run into way more things than maybe that one thing you might have amplified. Okay. Now, that might not be the case. This still is, is somewhat of an empirical question that we can answer in research, and we're trying to do that now. One thing we do know um, is that the original story always, almost always, travels way further into the information universe than the rebuttal or the refutation. But we, but we still need to do it. Um, and we need to find more formal ways of doing it. And we need to excite other scientists and healthcare providers in doing this. The only problem is we'll never be able to refute everything. But these mm -hmm. examples, I feel, that's my way of thinking it, are good ways to engage someone on the topic so then they can do some of their own refutation themselves. So you do a great job over and over emphasizing this point, as you just said, that uh, disinformation travels so quick, yet it takes so much work to kind of pull it back, right? That's right. This is one of my, there's lots of principles in, in bullshit studies, if there's such a thing, if you'll allow me. Actually, I'm putting it on my CV now, bullshit studies. <laughs> um, so, um, and it's one of the more important principles. It's called the Brandolini bullshit asymmetry principle, that it takes orders of magnitude more effort to refute bullshit than it is to create it. And we see this with things like we talk about it with Pizzagate and, of course, the vaccination um, you know, papers that have been refuted, um, you know, over and over and over. 
easy to create these stories relatively than it is to clean up the hundreds of millions of dollars we've spent on research trying to show that you know, vaccinations are safe and effective and save millions of lives and don't kill millions of people. And so that that's sort of a, a, a fixture or you know a characteristic of our time now, our communication, um, our you know this information age that we're in, uh, it just makes that true. And so things like the the efforts by doctors and researchers are important. There's a, a colleague of mine, actually, he's my neighbor too, and he's doing some great work. He's a he's a researcher at the Fred Hutch Cancer Society, and he does a lot of stuff, or Cancer Institute, and does a lot of stuff around nutrition research. And he has a new project called Red Pen Reviews. And he reads a lot of these nutritionist books that are sold by, you know, in the millions, but are not backed by any evidence or sometimes not very much evidence. So he and his colleagues have put together this great group and they go and they and they say, hey, I mean, <laughs> here's our view on the research. Some of it's good. Some of it's not. They try to be as, as balanced as possible. And um, for them, it's a little easier because they pick out books that have already gone viral. But I know that he would love to do it before they go viral. Um, so sometimes you, there's no way we could time these things. And it's so hard to measure. So I feel like we shouldn't just be frozen. And we should just go for it sometimes and talk about these things and refute them when we can. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So we, we at the beginning, I suggested that misinformation, disinformation will represent probably one of the uh, greatest challenges for this generation. But how would you suggest that we really fight this going forward. And, you know, I have a 16-year-old daughter and a 21-year-old son. Do we need courses like you're doing or what would you suggest? So I have an eight-year-old and a six-year-old. It's something I'm concerned about all the time. Actually, I use them as guinea pigs on certain things that I'm teaching, you know, maybe a high school teacher or students and middle school students. I think the best thing that we can do is increase our attention on media literacy, data literacy, philosophy of science, because science is a great way of sifting through BS. You know, we've developed this system, which I think is one of the most, you know, one of those amazing human inventions for sifting through it. It has self-correcting mechanisms. It has a methodical way in which we go about understanding the world around us. And so I think talking about those things are important. There are some efforts, like in my state, we haven't done everything right around education, but we were one of the first states to require media literacy in high schools wow. um, and middle schools. And I think we need to do that across the country. We're do, we have this activity in, at our university we do once a year now with other universities called Miss Info Day. So we bring hundreds of high school students from around the state to the campus to talk for an entire day about misinformation and media literacy. And I think if we had more university, any of your university wants to join, let me know and we can, we can add you to the list. We can give you all the material. Um, and doing things like that, just realizing that it's an important part of everything we do nowadays yeah. um, and, and trying to make us you know, better consumers. Now, we still should be thinking about legal tools that we have to slow the spread of disinformation from bad state actors and propagandists and opportunists. We should be you know, partnering when we can with big tech to encourage them to change things in their platforms that uh, have been facilitating misinformation. But all those things, again, I think are secondary to just helping us all become better uh, information consumers. So yes, I think all high schools should have these kinds of courses. We're trying to help develop, but there's others out there. We have colleagues out there doing great work specifically around that group. We're also working with retired folks, for example, too. So we're working with ARP in the state of Washington and other organizations that are not just the digital natives. And so, um, yeah, I think this is the thing that we need to do it's the, it's the challenge of our time. And hopefully when we look back 20, 30 years from now, we'll think, remember that time when 
there was all of that pollution around and, and, and we were consuming it. Hopefully that'll change. It's also interesting to note that in the age of COVID, and I never thought I would see this happen, but Facebook, Twitter, and Google are beginning to assume some level of responsibility for squashing the amplification of some incorrect information. I am surprised too, Brian. I, I've been tracking this for many years and frustrated in many ways and been quite critical of a lot of these big tech platforms. And they are finally doing something. I still don't think it's enough. I don't think it's even close to enough, but they are doing something. I think what they have now are some better uh, you know, guideposts. They have specific rubrics on what they consider um, information that needs to be taken down because they did have some of that before. I mean, certainly around things like child pornography and certain kinds of um, yep. hate speech. It was, yep. They had guidelines, not, not like they ever had it. It's just they wanted to completely avoid being that filterer, but they... I think they're realizing and they're getting yelled at, hopefully, by the public, and they should be. And now by politicians. Yesterday, they were in front of congressional hearings. I still don't think the congressmen and congresswomen were hard enough on them. I want them to be harder on them. Um, but they are doing some things like, for example, putting up banners. Uh, you know, when people search things like COVID-19 or coronavirus, they're, they're, they're employing mm-hmm. fact checkers. They're flagging things. Um, they they have to be doing that. They've been lucky to not have the kind of regulations that healthcare or the auto industry or all these other industries that have, uh, you know, this requirement that they come to the regulatory table. And I think it's time for the public to be involved in, in that process and to ask questions like, you know, how how is your algorithm working? What are you know what are the objectives? Right. How many of them are fake accounts and bots, et cetera? There's lots of things that they could be doing that would help not only the public, but also themselves as business, because they're starting to see that I think the public's starting to get fed up with it. And even advertisers, there was a big boycott recently with Facebook. Right. And that I thought that was fantastic. That made them that made them uh, uh, actually have to react because that's their that's their source of all their funding. And for so that the advertisers do it, I think we have a chance to change their behavior. So, Jeremy, this has been an absolutely remarkable conversation. I've got pages here of notes from uh, Calling Bullshit, and we could go on for about three hours, but uh, we're going we're gonna to save that maybe for a, a follow-up with you or from some of the people from your center, maybe. I would be happy to follow up. I'd be happy to uh, invite my colleagues from the center to join. This has been a lot of fun, Brian, I, and I, I look forward to the next time that we get to talk. So thanks for having me on. How can people find out about um, you and Carl in the book? Where can they go? So they can go to a couple different places. They can go to our uh, uh, website, our course website that we make available. It's called callingbullshit.org. Kind of an easy thing, mm-hmm. callingbullshit.org, all one word. You can visit me on Twitter at Jevin West, so J-E-V-I-N-W-E-S-T. And you'll find a link to the book there as well. You'll also find it on the um, on our course website but you can also go to our center it's called cip.uw.edu where you can learn more about our new center devoted to this topic as well the book is calling bullshit the art of skepticism in a data-driven world by jevin west and carl bergstrom and available from random house uh in early august 2020 um love this book and i think that what you all read here uh, could start a bigger conversation about media literacy and how we consume and propagate information both as health consumers, and providers. Thank you, Dr. West. Thanks so much, Brian, and look forward to talking again. Thanks for listening. 
Be sure to check out more stuff like this on 33charts.com and follow and like us on 33charts on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you for joining us in the exam room. If you like what you heard here, please rate the program, review us, or let folks know about us. And if you have any really cool ideas that you'd like discussed here, please feel free to let us know. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.